0: Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor live videos. I've been doing quite a few recordings this last week, so forgive me for that. Uh, And I had a heck of a day on New Year's with my electronics issues, so I did not get a live session on New Year's. So Happy New Year's to you, my lovely audience. I have Dennis McDonald in the studio to talk with us about his new book, and this is a significant milestone. I am thrilled to death to be able to talk with him about it. And I've read many of his other books. So uh, let's get this show on the road and get started. Let me turn my sound down real quick so this doesn't clobber your eardrums. And let's go. Woohoo! Yeah, baby! That's from Mark Crispin. My heater just kicked on. Sorry for the noise. It'll shut off just shortly. I turned it down. Hey, uh, I have uh, just a brief announcement, and then we will start talking with Dr. McDonald and his new book, a new book that you must get. You'll cheat yourselves if you don't get this one. Uh, My announcement is this Sunday live with Dan Vogel. I had a good conversation with him this afternoon and he is raring to go. He is so excited. He can't hardly see straight. So don't forget Sunday night, 6 o'clock and we'll get our beloved Mormon historian. In the meantime, let's have our beloved classical and biblical historian and scholar come on here, and we are in for an education tonight. I am thrilled to bring back my dear and good friend, Dennis R. McDonald. Hello, Dennis. How are you?
1: Hey, Carrie. It's so good to be back, and
0: uh, how generous you are to your viewers. Well, my viewers are the best viewers in the world as far as i'm concerned just like my guests so okay so how have you been since i last saw you uh,
1: well we i'm aging you. like everyone else oh. <laughs> and i'm living in political nonsense so uh like everybody else so and i'm living in a world in which there is a lot of suffering and in inequality and um i wish i could do more about that i'm I consider my work to be a part of a larger cultural battle uh, to make sure that, um, that religion is not a part of the problem. And so, um, I, I mean, that's terribly optimistic and uh, probably egotistical, but it's one of the few things I can do apart
0: from, you know, um, recycling garbage. There you go, There you go. Well, I'll tell you what when i when I get to be your age, I hope I am as robust and energetic and still gung- ho and sharp in my mind as you are because your contributions to New Testament scholarship, and I'm not just buttering you up here. Um, I, I have been so blessed to have been able to read. I don't think I have all your books. I got the majority of them, but I, I've been looking on Amazon.com, and there is a couple that I've missed along the way. But I think for the most part, I've got the complete gist of what you're doing. And I'll tell you what, the two things that have happened to me from reading your materials that I want my audience to grasp. Now, my audience at this point knows I'm I'm not a scholar, but I'm serious about studying the scholars. And so I, I, I would say there's a
1: difference between a scholar and an intellectual. And Carrie, you certainly are an intellectual. Oh, well, that's very and, kind and, of you. And, and, you know, and uh, I, the, the scholarly piece comes with the, uh, some more discipline and training and to recognition sure. that way. But uh, my guess is that lots of the people who are watching us today are themselves intellectuals. And these are people who are willing to question uh, authority. They're willing to open up questions and to be creative in the solutions. And that's really where the intellectual center of religious discourse ought to be. It ought not to be in in universities, at least not solely um it's got to be now in the public media and workplaces
0: um like the backyard exactly right and that's why we i so appreciate you being so willing to come on because i want to bring the academia i want to bring the scholars to the public we are Starving intellectually. And spiritually I think so. I think so. Yeah. Because we hear this same thing in church year after year, and we know we're capable of more. We just don't know where to look. You are one of those wonderful guiding lights. So, so your work, and I, I get it. I know You're, you are a pioneer, and your groundbreaking work is. It is uh I, I won't say a jolt but it, it's new even to the scholars and so yeah. it takes time to, to to break into this now it's not because your work is difficult to read i i can tell you right now if i can read your stuff and i really can and totally enjoy it then any of my audience can and i do have a wonderful really intelligent audience Hey, all you guys. I see y'all. Yeah, I see y'all. I'm not going to, I'm just saying hi to all of you totally for right now because I want to get on with uh, thank you for coming, all you guys. We're going to have a question and answer session too. But first, um, the book, the text, I'm not trying to take away from Dr. McDonald's time here, but this text, brand new text out. Synopses of Epic Tragic and the Gospel or Tragedy and the Gospels. And it's three volumes in one, you guys. It's a steal. Do you know if it's still on sale, Dennis? Um,
1: I want to put it in the
0: context, Carrie. Oh, okay. you you have
1: spent probably almost four hundred dollars in my books. Yes, I have. You can get this at on Amazon right now for 22 dollars. Oh my goodness. This is fa- this is 570 pages um, as a reference work. It is not an argument. It's a reference work that you can go to to see what parallels there might be in Greek poetry, which has been so sadly ignored in scholarship and in the church. So th- you for the the amount of money that you have spent, for a fraction of it, people can have a distillation and a mature uh, appreciation of it. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's, it would, <laughs> I, I don't want to be a hard sale on this, but um, it really matters to me that the copies of this book as a part of my legacy uh, get out there. And I think it can be used in religious education. I can be think it can be used devotionally for people. I think it can be used in apologetics and argumentation and so on. Uh, I'm not trying to control how it gets used, but this material needs to be out there and it needs to be accessible to people in English um, in uh, more or less understandable ways. And I'm so appreciative of uh, you and uh, Derek Lambert and others who have um, kind of done a um, end run on the academy and yeah. seen. Yeah, this stuff needs to be out there. But in addition to in addition to buying the book, I would so appreciate people who um, feel appreciative for it, even if they're modestly critical of it, to do an Amazon review. Oh yes, uh, this is this is important for people who are exploring it. Uh, it, it puts the, uh, the the book higher on the register for Amazon for uh, promotion and so on.
0: Yeah, I I I, I will I will get there. What I would like to do it may take me a little while because I would like to at least. Uh, I, I probably won't read it cover to cover, but I do want to take some time to learning. It's not technically a like you're saying, it's a fantastic ref. I love how you've laid this out, Dennis, how you've shown the, the parallels. And if I understand right now, um you translated all of the Greek, these are your translations, correct? Everything
1: that is in the book is my translation, except for a few. Uh, passages um, where I uh, cite another translation. But all the Homeric imitations are mine. Uh (laughs) Translations are mine. All the in from Greek, Uh, all the ones from Virgil's Aeneid in Latin are mine. All the ones from the New Testament are mine. And the reason for it, um, Carrie, is when you... Uh, A classicist is going to treat the Homeric uh, epics with a certain aesthetic. And uh, biblical scholars are going to uh, uh, orient themselves in their translations to a certain religious aesthetic uh, when it comes to translating the Gospels. But these texts are much more similar to each other when they're seen in translation because the similarities have to do mostly with characterization and motifs Mm-hmm. and uh, common mythemes. Myth so um the philology of the niceties of, of the difference between homeric greek and koine greek are not as important as the thematic and characterization which brings me to another issue which we talked in preparing for this you and i yeah um namely that biblical scholars have been prone to understand gospel authors as scribes. And um, th- this is really not the way most ancients worked. They worked as artists and they rewrote with mimesis. That is, they didn't use sources so much as models. And these models are often um uh, and you can see it in the with the use of the Hebrew Bible. Some of these, uh, these texts are modeled after yeah. uh, texts from the Hebrew Bible. But if you don't know the Homeric epics, if you don't know Virgil's Aeneid, if you don't know Athenian tragedy, you're going to miss so many of the parallels yeah. in the Gospels. And so this book is intended to be a reference work as I, we joked about this earlier as we prepared, I told you to read only the first 20 pages, uh, because, yeah, yeah, and the first 20 pages, that'll tell you what this book's about, but after that, it's a phone book, it's an encyclopedia, it's a reference work, and that's got an argument that's tacit to it, but it can be divided up um, almost endlessly. So, for the Synoptics, there are 228 different logia that uh, I explore. Yeah. With the Acts of the Apostles, there are over a hundred that yeah. I explore. Oh, well, i mean, explore... It's it rich.
0: It's rich with examples. I love it. So, that.
1: you know, this is the, honestly this is the biggest bargain in biblical scholarship out there right now. True, and true. The, it's not exaggerating yeah no, and the t- soon the price the price will double yeah, um, yeah
0: so. now. and we're not trying to i I mean seriously, you guys, I have bought some of Dennis's books were ninety dollars, and I bought them with pure joy, and I read them enthralled <laughs> uh, it's not about the money on this topic, really, truly, you get what you pay for and you really do get your money's worth. I can I can verify that I have not been disappointed at all in anything Dennis has written. Now this is I, I'm not trying to butter you up Dennis I, I I don't believe in doing that but there are some scholars whom uh, I, I have four or five books of theirs and two of them are really good that I, that I just really got a lot out of. And, and a couple of them, I go, eh, not so much. I have not done that with any of yours, well,
2: that's and a, that amazes that's me
0: too. I'm ju- I'm not just saying that to you know because you're my guest here. No, uh, well, but, you know that I did that one video over a year ago, ranting and raving about you too. Because uh no, you It's did. so refreshing to get this this angle. This um, now, I, and I'm going to tell this for my audience' sake, and you guys will know this. Well, thank you, Radio Free Mormon. Bless your heart. Thank you for showing up. Um, Radio Free Mormon is one of the most prominent commentators on uh, on the internet and the YouTube right now on this transitional Mormonism thing. But uh, what what I love about this is I, I'm I'm really serious. There is some incredible scholarship in these texts, but it's some scholars you know, like Reisenstein. I mean, come on. Yeah, You have whole paragraphs in the Greek or you have whole paragraphs in the German and they don't bother to translate them. Now, Now, those are okay. Those are good. I mean, I get my dictionaries out and translate them myself anyway, but it takes so much time. Dennis hasn't done that with this and yet it's obvious he's put the scholarship in it, but I can read it. I can't tell you how important that is it it's scholarly it is i'm not gonna hold that back from you but it's accessible And I don't know how you do that, Dennis, because like you're saying, one, you almost have to be familiar with these Greek epics somewhat mildly. Look, it's even going to help you guys seriously. If if you just can't make the time to study the Greek epics, which I think you're cheating yourselves if you don't, get the Cliff Notes version, version and get an outline of them at least because the story parallels that are discussed in the Greek materials, and then in the Gospels, I'm always going, oh, I never thought of it that way. And it helps me appreciate both the Greeks and the Bible. I
1: I want to say something autobiographically about myself in these things. And then I wanted to give my own introduction to the synopses, if I could. Sure. I grew up in a fundamentalist, in the home of a fundamentalist, Baptist, pastor, and missionary. And so I knew the gospel story as well. Mm -hmm. But um, when I went to graduate school, I became enchanted by um, not only Greek mythology, but even more so Greek literature. And the Homeric epics are both mythology, but they're also literature. And they became literature that was uh, foundational to um, the Greek identity. And I became friends with a scholar named Albert Lord, who is the uh, author of a famous book on Homeric Epic called The Singer of Tales. And um, Albert said to me, why is it that biblical New Testament scholars ignore the most important poetry that was around in the Roman Empire uh, that is uh, that is epic, both in Greek, that is the Homeric epics and other uh, in the epic cycle, and the Homeric hymns, and uh, Virgil's Aeneid, and to some extent, the Morphoses of it. So... Uh, uh, I turned my attention to that because I thought I knew the Gospels pretty well and it was just one Eureka after another after another. Mm-hmm. And I was um, fortunate enough to have a scholarship at Harvard that allowed me to study with classicists and to understand archaic Greek and to be able to translate these things in a way that most New Testament scholars had not been able to. And I don't consider myself a genius, although I know some people have uh, labeled me as that. I consider myself a fortunate beggar who found bread and wants to share it uh, because yeah. these, are, these are discoveries that are not yeah. going away. They have to be accounted for in some way. Now, one can account them for them in many ways. You can account for them as conscious literary uh, manipulation, uh, even plagiarism, I don't think they're plagiaristic at all. I think they're full of uh, alternative meanings. You could say it's a part of, um, you know, uh, Greek culture that uh, they have Homeric radiation everywhere. So um, you could say it's an accident, but one has to account for some of these. And I have chosen uh, one model to talk about where you can see how this uh, works. But I want to say something more about synopses of Epic Tragedy and the Gospels, yeah, which, yeah. which which is a reference work, but it's a reference work in three volumes. It is, yeah. The first volume is a synoptic, uh, a, a mimetic synopsis of four Gospels. That is Q+, plus, which is my reconstruction of the lost Gospel, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Imitations of Deuteronomy, Homer, and Athenian tragedies. Now, Carrie, the reason that this is important is that there are four huge deficiencies in all previous synopses, including the wonderful Greek uh, synopsis of Aland and, and uh, also of Huckebrunn. Namely, that they put the Gospels uh, as the in canonical order not in chronological order. So that they're presented as Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and then sometimes John, right? That's one deficiency. Another deficiency is why don't they include the Luke, the Acts of the Apostles, which is a part of Luke's literary project? because yeah. to understand Luke, you have to understand the Acts of the Apostles, where the voice of this author is even more clear than it is in the Gospels, because he's more or less on his own in uh, composing. Another deficiency is to include the Gospel of John as though it's a coherent uh, text. Uh, It probably was written in three different and consecutive compositional moments, uh, each of which has its own social identity and theology. And one can actually stratify the Gospel of John into three different layers and compare them synoptically. But that's not how it appears in other synopses. And the most serious problem is that there is no place in earlier synopses of the Gospels anywhere in English, in Greek, in German, in French. That includes texts that weren't written by Christians or Jews. It's though these authors are, written, are living in a cultural bubble that is not influenced by things that are influencing everybody else.
0: Yeah. And
1: yeah. so um, we really need to have a larger understanding. Another is this difference between uh, scribalism and mimesis. These authors are not scribes. They're authors. They're artists. They're using the um, the literature that is around in order, and this is important,
0: Gary. Yeah, yeah. This is in order,
1: a- in order to create um, an ideology that works for new social identities as the Christian Church is growing. So that it's trying to carve out its identity, not only related to Judaism, but also to the Greco-Roman world. Much the way that Philo and Josephus are struggling to create a Judaism that's palpable uh, or acceptable to, um, to, to Romans um, and, and to the Greek culture under Rome. So that's why you have volumes two and three. Volume yeah. two is... A Mimetic Syncrosis, that is a comparison of the Acts of the Apostles, that is imitations of Homer, Euripides, and rivalry with the Iliad. And Volume 3, A Mimetic Synopsis of Three Gospels of John, imitations of the synoptics and Euripides of Bacchae. And uh, Carrie, we had a wonderful session at one point in talking about the Dionysian Gospel.
0: Oh, which really off. got
1: it really got you juiced I, I, up,
0: Dennis. That's still my favorite book, man. What can't you make out? What can't you make out? Radio Free Mormon. Talk to me. Is Dennis coming through clear? I can hear him perfectly. So let me know in the comments. I'm not sure what you're talking about. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so, so Dennis, let me ask you a quick question. We are we are better. Uh, to view the gospel author do you think they were writing do you think they thought that they were writing scripture or literature um
1: they certainly didn't think they were writing scripture okay what they were writing in my view is f- foundational uh, literature about two about three different aspects of the movement that they were were valorizing one is who is jesus okay is the, the leader of the community and that's why we have such Christological diversity. Is Jesus a donor deity as he is in the Gospel of John? Is the ideal martyr as he is in the Gospel of Matthew? Is, he, uh, is the consummate teacher as he is in the Gospel of Matthew? And so on. So those are that's one piece. Another piece is who are the good guys? That is, what is the in-group? What do they stand for? What are their ethics? What do they expect to happen in the future? How do they treat each other? How are they supposed to organize life? And so on. The this third... is
0: kind of the social identity thing you've- That's exactly
1: what it is. Okay, that's exactly okay I'm following
0: right. you then. I'm following yeah. you. Yeah, that's really important. That's something I had never before thought of, but that's really cool stuff. And,
1: and the third is actually just as important. Who are the bad guys? Is it, uh, in <laughs> some, and, and it and it changes from time to time. Um, so oh, in yeah. some text it's the Gentile, sometimes it's the chief priests it's in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes it's the Pharisees as it was in the Q document. Sometimes it's the Roman Empire. And uh, so this this group is using narrative brilliantly in yeah. order to establish its identity and its boundaries. And that's uh, a part of what social identity criticism is about, and uh, what yeah. and my synopsis is pretty heavy on that.
0: So, so Dennis, based on that, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't necessarily be bothered at all if there's contradictions between the gospels. I mean, that's almost to be expected. That really doesn't take away from their value at all, does it? Oh. Uh, the the differences are the beauty of it, Carrie. Right. I
1: love this. I love this. Yes, uh, because um, the Q document is coming from a time before the Jewish War, and the big uh, issues are um, the um, restrictions of Jewish law on people, and Jesus is represented in the Q document as making the law more tolerable for the marginal in society. That's why Jesus says in the Q document, "I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners." He's uh, he's uh, criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Yeah. The the story about um, the I'm hanging out tris- with
0: those women. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and the, the, the adulterous woman story is coming yeah. from Q, in my judgment, and so that's in my reconstruction. But um, by the time you get to Luke, writing in the second century, the issue has to do with um, uh, Roman identity and the church's place in the Roman Empire. Matthew's concern is uh, written about uh, three um, decades earlier, is what is the role of the Christian church inside of Judaism? And to what extent does it accept Judaism or not? The issues for the Gospel of John have to do with how does the new Christian movement um, relate to Dionysian religion? So the, the, what's driving the differences of the Gospels is an understandable difference in their social identities.
0: Yeah. And and
1: these authors are doing their best. And by the way, I think they're doing a brilliant but flawed job in doing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm very appreciative of these authors because they're trying to give their readers um, um, a better um, foundational mythology than what they've been reading. So Matthew's trying to improve on Mark. Luke's trying to improve on Matthew and Mark, and uh, according, in my view, and then is trying- trying-
0: Matthew and Luke
1: who use Q? Uh, well, I think I think Mark uses Q too. Myself, so that's my oh, oh, oh. one of my unusual spins. Oh. So um, no, these to understand these authors as being homogenous is like. Saying the only milk we want to drink is homogenized milk, and we'll never have cheese or yogurt or um, uh, sour cream.
0: Oh, what an analogy! I love that. I'm going to steal that from you, man. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, Well, I'm stealing it. I'm stealing stealing it from others. Impressed with gospel harmonies at all? That, That just doesn't. You know that to me that just doesn't make sense. And honestly, not to not to change this subject too much, but part of the problem in the Mormon Church is this attempt. It seems to me that they want to harmonize the Mormon view in the Mormon scriptures. They want to harmonize the Bible to the Mormon view. They Mormonize the Bible is how I've termed it before, and. I don't see that as being valuable, but then they focus on trying to historicize theology instead of appreciate the human dimension, the differences. They don't like the idea that there are differences. They want it all to be one harmonious doctrine beginning from Adam and coming all the way through. I just don't see how that can be done. So yeah, what? Kerry, what? it what? is.
1: It, Carrie, it is not a Mormon issue. It's part of the Christian tradition. You can see it in uh, Greek Orthodoxy. You can see it in Catholicism, that theology is interested in normativity and harmony. And so you have uh, apologists in all these religions trying to harmonize things. Now, theology actually ought to be understood as ideologies of living communities and their authors who are trying to make sense of the nonsense of the world they're living in by, um, uh, um, uh, I saw a, a chat, I'm eager to read it, but yeah, um, we'll, you know, look it. we'll look at it. But um, the theology ought to be understood as uh, social ideology discussions. And the fact that you have um, an I, I view all interests in making normative theology to be a new kind of idolatry. It's, Ooh, it's, it's well because, because you yeah. what you want to do is you want to have a hegemonic, unified understanding. But if that theology does not account for diversity including ethnic diversity, gender diversity, uh, regional diversity, historical diversity, it really doesn't work. And what we're after is human wisdom and not divine revelation. And if you insist on divine revelation, then it should be unified. If you're talking about human wisdom, it's so
0: wonderfully diverse. I never looked at it quite that way. Yeah, that, that's that's good. I, I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, this is my dear friend T.O. I just did a, a, a recording with him and posted it just a couple of days ago. I bought McDonald's synopsis of epic tragedy and gospels brings Jewish and Christian lenses together via Greek literature. One of the most valuable contributions to New Testament studies. I I will second that. Thank you, T.O. T.O welcome um i'm so glad you're able to see dennis here and i hope i hope to see some good questions we have a chance to ask a world-class bible scholar some really good questions on this here in a little while um dennis i would like if you if you don't mind i'm loving this (laughs) this is just so cool i'm gonna break in and say again really serious you guys buy the book it's You're never going to get this amount of scholarship for this excellent price. I wouldn't care if it wasn't on sale. I would tell you to buy the book. I I bought this one. This just blows my mind, this one. This is so sensational. It's hard to describe. And then there's this. Sorry, I'm going to do some book plugs, Dennis, and then we'll get back on topic. This one is the first one I had. And it just blew my mind. I I, every page had something. I went back and looked up the and I'm going, wow, that's why that happens. The other thing I noticed, and this this will get me to segue into the other to the next topic. I would love to have you elaborate on. I have noticed, and and I know you're not you are not a you 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 saw yourself as an atheist, but some some atheists. I will say it this way. I have noticed that some atheists have truly dumped on Jesus some of his actions. And I, I just, I haven't known, you know, how to deal with that. Not, not that I cared to, but I thought, you know, if I ever wanted to defend that, uh, wow, what would I do? Your texts bring such... Uh, an interesting dimension to the idea that these are comparative almost. Well, mimesis, they're imitations of the Greek epic of of Virgil, of of Homer. And so it's not necessarily that uh, Jesus is doing something bad. Like when the swine ran over the cliff, you know, who does Jesus think he is, destroying a farmer's herd like that, just to cast out a bunch of stupid demons? Couldn't he have done it a more economical way? Yeah, you know, things like that. Yet your approach to this gives me a chance to say, well, uh, if the idea is to take a a wonderful Greek story and use it to create a story of Jesus that actually elevates him or enlarges him, say, uh, either in, in even being a little wiser or a little more charitable in other instances for stuff like that, then it's not so much that Jesus is a jerk. It's that these men are showing, look, they knew their audiences knew the Greek stuff, right?
1: Okay, let me, let me respond to it two ways. Okay. One is, uh, I, I'm, I don't object to being identified as an atheist or an agnostic.
0: But you're but not both, an enemy uh, to Christianity.
1: No, no, let me finish. Okay. Um, but both of those are terms that relate to what you don't believe in. I wanted, I'd rather talk about myself as a Christian-identified, humanist, theoskeptic. <laughs> Christian identified humanist theoskeptic.
0: I love that. So, um, but that gets too wordy. Now, it, one, it does, but what's the acronym for that? Christianized.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, but the, then I want to get to another piece. Um, by comparing these stories, the issue is how Jesus can be more compassionate or more powerful. Now, I'm trying to talk about it dispassionately as a historian. Sure. But I find that gospel stories are trying to do something with Greek epic, which is really quite fascinating. Let me give you one example. Absolutely. In, um, in give us three the, or four. In the story of Jesus and or, or the uh yeah, the Jesus and the Garrison demoniac. Uh, Jesus uh, travels with his 12 disciples and goes by ship and lands on a shore, encounters a monster who lives in caves. Think Polyphemus in, in uh, the, the Odyssey. And um, uh, finally uh, ex, ex- um, exercises 2,000 demons, sends them into swine, and uh, he gets rid of them. Now, the story in the Odyssey that is there uh, is that Odysseus comes with 12 men, goes into a cave, and he finds this monster who uh, eats his men. And Odysseus blinds him, steals his sheep, and sails away. Now, which of those two heroes would you say is more moral, the Jesus story or the Odysseus story? And I'll give you one uh, example. Um, I used to uh, give my son at 13 um, stories that come from both Homer and from the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I did have him enrolled in Sunday school, so he knew something about Gospel stories. So this was one that I told him. I told him the story of the garrison demoniac, which is like fee-fi-fo-fum, right? Uh, the, uh, I smelled the blood of an Englishman and said uh, uh, Jack Beanstalk. And then I told him the story of the uh, the gospel story and I asked him at the end, which story did you like better? He says, oh, the story of Polyphemus is much more exciting. And then I said, uh, who's going to be a a better model for your life? Odysseus who blinds this guy or Jesus who, you know, gives him healing? And he says, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to be better. Today, my son is a nurse. Now, it's not because of that story, but um, as you said, it's not plagiarism. It's not innocent and uh, mindless use of mythology.
0: Not at it's, all.
1: It, it's, uh, it's structured into a moral world where the author is crafting uh, Jesus over against Polyphemus to say that we have a different kind of hero. Get over it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it... it Look, when you read these parallels, the thing that's amazing is you have so many of them, too. Oh, they go
1: on and on. And I haven't discovered all
0: of them. Honestly, I know I haven't. But you can see that there was great intelligence put into uh, these Gospels. There's no question.
1: Well, the the idea that the, the authors were fishermen and not educated is really being challenged at so many levels. These yeah. are not the greatest intellectuals of the Greco-Roman world no. or, or of, of the Greek-speaking uh, early Roman Empire. But they are for their communities intellectuals. And, um, yeah. and, and they ha- in order to accomplish what they're doing, they had to have a reasonable Greek education. Yeah, um, because that's uh, and of course Absolutely. the center of Greek education was Homeric
0: epic. Crimey, they were probably better Greek educated than we are in our. Society. Oh, there's
1: no doubt about it. That's why it's yeah. been so invisible to us, because exactly. we don't understand. A Hegel has a wonderful line that says the Homer was the oxygen that Greeks breathed. That's it's not. True. It's not the oxygen we breathe. No. And so this is why
0: business degrees.
1: And this is why my friendship with Albert Lord was so important. He said, why is this stuff being ignored um, when it's so important and ubiquitous?
0: Yeah. So so I, I wanted to segue into this just to let you talk about it a little bit. And then maybe we can do a couple of readings out of your book. Uh, you said you, you'd like to do that with a couple of these fabulous parallels. But let me just ask you for the audience sake, uh, would you would you uh, just describe your view of the historical Jesus? Because this subject comes up, all the time when you start talking New Testament Gospels or whatever. Of course, and it should. How has your studies helped you appreciate or demonstrate material about Jesus?
1: What I try to tell my students is to just imagine taking a text of the Gospel of Luke where the... um, the mythologies are so widespread from Jesus's infancy to his appearances after his re- resurrection. And just rub out everything you could attribute to mythology, whether you know, uh, so, you know, uh, Lazarus and dives in Hades, and so on. Just yeah. get rid of it. What's left? You wouldn't have a lot left, would you? You have a huge, Gary, you have a huge amount left. That's the point. You what have? What about? If you take, I, I must
0: not have heard you right. If you take out the mythology, if of you the take stories? out
1: the mythology, you have most of the Gospel of Luke left. What about the parables? What about the ethical teachings? What about the prophecies? What about um, the, uh, the the disputes with Pharisees? What about? uh, I see
0: where you're heading with this now. Okay.
1: Mimesis is simply the way that the tradition beautified uh, a historical Jesus and an earlier text, which we call Q. And I don't expect everybody to buy into my Q. And it is—it's—I would say it's—it's not arbitrary, but it is conjectural. Yeah, All right. I'll, I'll, I'll so, check
0: into that, and I'm gonna. I intend on on comparing you with Mark Goodacre. I know he's the big non Q guy. It'll be fun. Oh, no, but there's got to be a Q document,
1: and I think the actually we shouldn't even be debating it. But uh, oh, okay. I'll be happy to debate it. But uh, I just think the evidence is so overwhelming, and it's overwhelming because. We know that there are lots of lost documents from the ancient world. And as a classicist, I spend a lot of time trying to piece together lost texts of the Apocryphal Acts of Apostles, for example. Or there are other pieces that... So the idea that you can reconstruct a lost gospel from uh, various uh, uh, pieces is a part of the philology of classics. Um, The the same thing happens with uh, the reconstruction of the so-called Marcian Gospel. The Marcian Gospel doesn't exist anymore than the Q document would be, but they both probably existed. But you have to reconstruct the uh, Marcian Gospel, for which there is not a single fragment, um, from the testimony to it. And this is what you have in the Q document. Now, I don't think I know that I would commit to knowing any single thing Jesus said, okay? Mm-hmm. But I would insist that there was a historical Jesus and that the vision that he had was soon interpreted as an alternative kingdom of God to what you have in traditional Judaism, that okay. the, the uh, Judaism um, had... Uh, come to a point where its restrictions, especially by Torah enforcers, was too restrictive. Think of the Apostle Paul, for example. Think even of Josephus in his statement about James the Just. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think about the the Q document. So my understanding of Jesus from the Q document, and this will come as a surprise perhaps, He's a Christian Socrates. He wrote nothing. He influenced um, uh, Greek society. Other people wrote about him and they they mocked him as in the Aristophanes, in in the plays of Aristophanes. Um, He was valorized by um, Xenophon and also by Plato, but uh, manipulated by Plato. And you have a number of other people who so we know a lot about who Socrates was, without being able to be confident of anything in particular he said. But in the Q document, we have uh, things that uh, uh, Jesus, in the Q document, Jesus forgives a woman against Torah, a uh, uh, Torah, uh, uh, the commandment. That she should be stoned, stoned and she yeah. never replan- and she never repents. He comes to call um, sinners, not the righteous. Uh, he says the the law, and the prophets were until John. After that, it's the kingdom of God. And then he talks about the kingdom of God as an ethic of compassion and inclusion. So he was um, in the modern religious landscape. He would have been a liberal. What?
0: Oh, no. I can't show this video to anybody? You can't call Jesus a liberal? Well, he was trying to humanize
1: Jewish law. And no, he wasn't a liberal in our sense in that he still believed in God. He still believed in God's victory in the future. Uh, through Jesus' return. He still thought obedience to Jewish law was a good idea, but he wasn't very happy with the um, rigorous enforcement of Jewish law. So we have analogies of this carry throughout the history of religion. One thinks of uh, Mahatma Gandhi in in Hinduism. One thinks of uh, Martin King. One thinks of Cesar Savez here in Chicago. And yeah. um, I, I think that we need to have less of a concern for th- the historical Jesus's Ipsissima verba, exact words. But I think we can talk about his Ipsissima vox. What was his voice? Where was he in the society? And that,
0: I like that. And like that,
1: that. that Jesus gets lost when you yeah. mythologize Jesus. And that's why the subtitle of one of my books is um, From uh, G-
0: Jewish Teacher to Epic Hero. Right there, Mythologizing Jesus.
1: And if you want to know who Jesus was, you stay with the Jewish teacher side. And by the way the Q document probably was written by a Jew not a Christian and he was a Jew who liked Jesus and thought he was the second uh, Moses the promised coming uh, uh, of Moses so i personally am a huge fan of the historical Jesus and my my own political interests have a lot to do with um, correcting the disparities between wealth and poverty and the inclusivity of uh, people of color and um, gender equality and compassion. So yeah. I, th- in my view, if you want to know, I think the historical Jesus was perceived to be a hero of compassion. and um, yeah, And I think there's reason to think he probably was. After all, His challenge to Jewish law was probably what God had crucified.
0: Oh, what else? What else was there that he was saying? Yeah, because I I was listening to a podcast somewhere and they said, You do realize that uh, might have been James Tabor, one of my other New Testament hero scholars. I mean, that guy does it all, doesn't he? He is so fun. But he said, uh, Jesus actually told. Uh, the Romans, he said, when they said, "Are are you the King of the Jews?" and he goes, "My kingdom is not of this world." And Pilate exonerated him. He said, "Oh well, if you're not here to threaten Rome," he goes, "How would I do that? My kingdom isn't even the this okay. earth. Uh, James Then he said, Tabor. "I wash my hands of the." Okay, James Tabor and I are friends, uh-huh. but he's he's much more confident
1: about the historical value of the Gospels than I am. Uh-huh. And so those are texts yeah, that is. I would yeah. So those are texts that I would attribute to um, the creative tradition after Jesus. Sure, sure. But one of the things that's important about your question, Carrie, that I so appreciate, uh, I, re- I want to emphasize this. Some people have used mythologizing Jesus or um, mimesis criticism as a way to say that Jesus is simply mythology. I would yeah. say Jesus is wonderfully mythologized because um, he was significant to them and to to have a place in the religious marketplace, you needed a mythology to to make sense of him. but um but there was a historical Jesus. I'm not as convinced as uh, as Tabor and others are that we can. Rescue Jesus' own words at his trial or whatever. I think the whole thing's mythologized. But I think we can posture Jesus into first century Judaism prior to the Jewish war mm-hmm. and say that he was a champion of Jewish liberalism, even more liberal than the school of Hillel. And it was considered so extreme and difficult that the romans tried to silence him is in order to be peace with the uh, jerusalem comu- with the um, jewish community um just a few decades before the jewish war
0: yeah interesting uh you know what dennis that that actually brings a phenomenal parallel uh, right now to today mostly for my audience of the uh the obvious factors involved it the church truly, and, and this is not a negative statement, but they, they will take it negative for whatever reason, but they are in the process of mythologizing Joseph Smith. Now, when folks begin stu- that's why they that's why they keep back some aspects of the history of what he said or did, or who he was involved with, or where, etc. Because from from a uh from an image of a historical true prophet that is not how a prophet would act or that's not something a prophet would say so let's not include that etc now the historians come along and they find wait a minute that feels deceptive and so it builds a mistrust because this process of Mythologizing Joseph Smith to be even greater than he was is appearing right in front of our eyes. And perhaps that's what was happening with Jesus. Give it a few more centuries. And I'm not going to be surprised at all. I won't be around, but I'll be surprised at all if Joseph Smith is you uhemerized into a deity. That, that, well, was, but uh, I think that's really fascinating.
1: And I'm not an authority on Mormonism at all. Certainly not the way you are. But in terms of social identity criticism, what happens is one uh, finds that um, in early Mormonism there were certain leaders who were representative of a certain uh, of a, a view and a revelation um, that they promulgated, and they got followers around them. Mm-hmm. These people then identified with the um these heroic characters right. and uh, embodied the values that they had. and in that and actually in the history of Mormonism, they gave kind of ethical passes to their heroes because their heroes were heroes. They did. and it, and so you have uh, a certain kind of a dicey history um, in the history of Mormon uh, leaders. But this is common in uh, social movements. So what Mormonism then found itself in struggle with is um, its identity inside of a a dominantly Protestant uh, uh, Western America. And it had to create... Um, its own barriers between its identity and those with the outsiders. And sometimes that conflict between the, with the in-group and the outsiders became violent. Um, And, um, and certainly there was an awful lot of ignorance on both sides about, you know, uh, about what was going on. So uh, what I think what, when this is why social identity of, theory is so important. It yes. helps us understand the way that human organisms, um, uh, organizations function, how they valorize a hero. And I'm not at all surprised that um, uh, Mormon heroes get mythologized over time. Yeah. But uh, originally they had a different function and it was to give identity to these uh, uh, people who identified with this vision. And uh, the vision then caused hostility with others. Well, that's what happened in Judaism in the first century, in my view, that Jesus became a reformer and a prophet who was proclaiming a kingdom of God that was at variance with what was happening in in Galilee with Pharisees and uh, uh, strict Torah observance that created um, hostilities and disagreements. And um, over time, Jesus became mythologized. So I yeah. think the analogy with uh, Mormon history is, its, it's uh, from my view, m- my perspective is obviously um, sophomoric. But I think there are some really interesting um, and pursuable uh, topics there.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are. Okay, so... Now we get to do a little fun, Dennis, if that's okay with you. Oh, I don't uh, like fun. I don't like fun. <laughs> <laughs> You're lying, you know. Yeah. When you uh, when you researched, you, uh, in, in the process of your research, what are some of your favorite uh, mimetic instances in the Gospels and uh, do you want to do you want to look at a couple in this and you read one side and I'll read the other. And we're only
1: I'm going to suggest we only do one. OK. And, and then we entertain whatever questions that come up and see where that's oh, going great now. idea.
0: Yeah. I've yeah. got absolutely everybody in my audience are all the intelligent ones tonight. So this is good. OK. Which one do you like the best? Let's what turn to page 278. 278. OK. Two,
1: got it. Okay. At the very top of the page, you see three parallels. Right. From Mark, one from Matthew, one from Luke. Okay. In canonical order. Yep. Um, At the end of the Markan column, we have this: the disciples all abandoned him and fled. Verse fifty-one. And a certain young man was following him, wearing a linen cloth over his naked body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and fled naked. Now, okay. that not that strange? Yeah. Jesus is there at night with a man who only has a linen cloth over his naked body, and Morton Smith uh, in my view, created a whole forgery on the secret gospel of Mark on the basis of this. Now, take a look at the page, Gary. Does Does Matthew have anything similar to that? Does Matthew have a parallel to verses 51, 52? No. No, it doesn't. Does Luke have a parallel to it? No. That's, that's... No. They think it's they're embarrassed by it, so they're on the synopsis. You see, they see this is a problem to have Jesus at night of his arrest. Being that's this interesting, guy. yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, so, um, on the next page, page 279, can you show us a picture of yeah. a naked young man coming from the netherworld? That's Elpenor, who's coming, um, and I'm going to read a, a passage then from 278. Mark's fleeing naked young man and Homer's Elpenor. Matthew and Luke and John retain nothing of Mark 14:51 to 52 about the nameless youth who fled at Jesus's arrest. And for nearly two millennia, readers have speculated over his identity. Mimesis of the Odyssey provides a a literary ID. These two verses are not merely a cameo appearance of a minor character, but a strategic setup for the stories of Jesus' death and resurrection to follow, but only in Mark. So the mysterious man visually resembles Jesus' as his death. I won't go into that. But take a look at the box in um, below it. This is the passage we just read. I just okay. read. And uh-huh. then I'm going to re- have you read the, 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 the stuff in the box that says Mark 16.5. Okay. Oh,
0: all right. Yep, yep. The
1: disciples fled with a Neoniskos wearing a um, linen cloth over his nakedness. They seized him, but he abandoned his linen cloak and
0: fled away naked. Okay. The women came to the tomb and saw Neoniskon. Yep, good few. Huh? Yes, good few wearing parabepplement a white robe, sitting in the tomb, Oh, on the right. Wait a minute.
1: Yes, so he's the young man at the tomb. In Mark, it's not an angel at the tomb. It's a young man at the tomb. And at the arrest, he's wearing a linen cloth, and he flees away naked. He reappears in the tomb wearing a white robe. Now, when Jesus dies he's wearing a sindone. Uh, after he dies, he's wrapped in a sindone, uh, the same word that's used. So he's a counter hero. Um, so but let's drop down. Um, I'll start reading the second to last paragraph at the bottom of the page. The American right. evangelist m- modeled his mysterious youth after Ho- Homer's Elpanor, Odysseus' tragic Com- comrade, uh, whom ancient artists depicted nude. His name is significant, Elpenor, hoping for madliness, longing one day to become like the rest of his companions, whom Odysseus had just called very manly, Agenor. Uh, El- Elpenor's first appearance occurs in Odysseus 10, after Circe's feast, and just before Odysseus sets out for Hades to consult Tiresias, the blind seer. As oh. the hero himself calls it, for, uh, recalls it, for the Phaeacians, there was a man, el Penor, the youngest, not particularly brave or gifted in mind, in battle, uh, brave in battle or gifted in mind. Apart from his companions in Circe's sacred home, he sought fresh air and lay down to sleep sodden with wine. When he heard the din and roar of men on the move, he jumped up at once. It escaped his mind to climb back down the long ladder, and he fell down from the roof. His neck broke from his spine, and his soul went down to the house of Hades. In Odyssey 11, El Panorso emerges from Hades and begs Odysseus to honor him with funeral rites befitting a hero, which he most certainly was not. (laughs) At the beginning of book 12, and at dawn, Odysseus dutifully buries his young comrade back at Circe's island. His construction of a barrow with a stele resembles the memorial shrines of Homeric heroes, but instead of a weapon of war, Elpenor sported a servile symbol, his oar. In other words, Elpenor is an anti-hero a synchrosis or a contrast to
0: Odysseus. Oh, so it appears perhaps Mark is transforming this. That's exactly right. And El is
1: identified with the netherworld because uh, Odysseus, when he goes to the netherworld, talks to El El-Penor. So n- now look what we have next. In fact, I'll let you read it, uh, Carrie. As soon as early dawn appeared.
0: Yeah, under the picture. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as early dawn appeared, rosy-fingered, I sent comrades to the house of Circe to bring the corpse, dead El Penor. Having felled logs at once, at the point where the land ran farthest into the sea, we buried him, grieving and shedding many tears. When the corpse and his armors had burned, we heaped up a tomb, hauled onto it a stela, and atop the tomb, planted his well-crafted ore.
1: The young man in Mark sits at dawn inside an open tomb and notifies the weeping women of the resurrection. Here oh. then is another synchrosis. Wow. The weeping of Elpanor's tombs becomes joy at Jesus's. Although <laughs> neither Matthew nor Luke retained the naked young man at the arrest, Luke provided his own imitation of El Panor in the Acts of the Apostles, and Virgil imitates the same thing to talk about um, the two of his warriors who died. He met so A him. lot
0: of people are imitating this story.
1: Yes, it, it was. It was very common to have a young man who uh, visits the netherworld and comes back to talk about the dead. You have it in uh, Plato's uh, myth of Ur, for example.
0: The myth of Ur, yes. The,
1: the soldier comes back and talks about what he had in the in the dead.
0: Yeah, now yeah.
1: there are the some of
0: the Republic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah yes, yeah, at yeah. the
1: end of the Republic, very good. Yeah, Book yeah. Ten. So um, this is an example of, one will never understand the significance of the naked young man at Jesus's arrest and a naked young man at the tomb if you don't know Homer. I'll just say it outright. You don't understand these texts until you understand the antitext. Or read Morton Smith oh no you don't uh, i actually have my own i knew morton smith tag you're it <laughs> i i had dinner with him two weeks before he died and i had people say i killed him but uh, that's not oh that's no concern. he died two weeks after he had a uh, he and i had a a major row i was in new york teaching and wow. um, we had dinner at the columbia faculty club and i gave a lecture afterwards and he stood up and was just irate absolutely because of this really? because of this very story and in 2 weeks he uh, he had died yeah ha, i didn't probably. kill him uh, it was i wasn't i, what I could an have
0: experience. been well, when we when we get together and have dinner together, I don't want you to kick off two weeks later. You stick around. You've got- <laughs> now, you are you are actually speaking of which, just real quick, uh, you are actually th- this this magnificent uh, capstone book to your career. This isn't actually going to be your last book either, is it? You've still got more. In you that you're going to pump out. I, I'm
1: working on another book. The way I'd like to express it is that, uh, Carrie, this book is a reference work. Uh huh. And um, it's like an encyclopedia. The next right. book I'm doing is an argument. It's arguing oh. that the synoptic problem will never be properly recognized and solved until there are three things that happen. One is that scholars recognize the influence of Greek poetry mm-hmm. because that, that cements Mark is the earliest of the Gospels and it uh, removes um, some of the material, it explains a lot of the material. The second is yeah. you have to get the Q document right, not just that it existed, but you have to use very careful criteria for reconstructing the Q document To understand its place, not because it is a word for word recall of Jesus's statements, but because it represents his voice. The third and perhaps the most important one, Carrie, and this is why I appreciate this discussion so much. We have to replace redaction with mimesis, that these authors are not scribes. They're artists. They're artists. And and so mimesis is a larger category for understanding this creativity. And by the way, in your own work and in your own imagination, you really understand this from what I understand what you're about. Namely, that we're not talking about wooden and conservative scribalism. We're talking about imaginative reconstructions of reality through narrative, and I think unless we um, can loosen up our categories of intertextuality, we're going to be stuck where we've been for a long time.
0: Yeah. Well, it, 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 the more the more parallels that um, I've been able to find in your works, in several of your other books too. Uh, the more it's dawned on me that um, this this really opens up a respect for these authors that I never had before, not even as an apologist. For whatever reason, you know, it's, it's just the theology that I was raised in. We believe in the Bible as far as it is translated correctly. So, of course, every time there's something different in the Bible than in the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants or whatever, it's always the Bible's fault, right? Well, you know, I was raised with that for 40 flipping years, and your work has helped me appreciate the idea of a mistranslation isn't nearly as important to see why there are differences than the principle of mimesis that there is an incredible intellectual achievement and like you said you know they're not they're they're not fishermen but they're not the academy of their day either but there is a tremendous amount of intellectual success here in these gospels that i have never appreciated before at yeah. all yeah
1: and, and so and I don't think I, one
0: of the very it, fun things about reading all your materials. Well, I th-
1: and that's what's made it so fun for me. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I believe I, it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I envy you for all of this fantastic discovery. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so uh, do you mind if I open it up to questions? Oh, please, please, please. Yeah, yeah. let's have some questions for Dr. I noticed a couple of uh, earlier ones where they were asking about the Q gospel and what evidence you had for uh, the Q. I can't remember who was asking, but uh, uh, let's see if I can find it. You guys feel free to start asking questions of Dr. McDonald. I'll try to get back to, I think it was Doug. Vincent that was asking about it These guys are such a Wonderful audience they talk like They talk like crazy to each other And uh, they really get into all this stuff Okay I I can't find it but Ask it again whoever asked it about Q Oh here we go Here's a question for you Dennis from Patty Cake So was Jesus Modeled on the Greek epics Um, Yes by the
1: gospel Authors he was um, and they the, their favorite topics were Odysseus, because Odysseus suffered so dramatically and was so superior to his uh, comrades and was, uh, kept his identity a secret and um, uh, loved his, his home. So he was a great example for suffering. Uh, Hector was a great example for heroic death. Uh, even though he thought his gods had um, abandoned him, he um, was courageous and, 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 and met a noble death. Mm-hmm. Um, the Euripides' Bacchae was important. Uh, the the Dionysus in uh, Greek epic, epic Greek tragedy was yeah. important because he Jesus was a uh, because Dionysus was the donor deity, and he changed water into wine. Uh, and produce wine for the mineads and water to uh, the to, to mineads in the, in the um, so, the, but uh, Patty, I, the one part I don't want you to take away from my response is that there is so much more of the Jesus in the Gospels than what could be attributed to Greek epics. And that's one of the things we can talk about with the Q document or the historical Jesus and so on. So I don't want you to think that Jesus was crafted uh, out of the Greek epics. I want you to think that he was exalted by uh, using narratives from the epics to talk about the significance of Jesus. But uh, these, the, The imitations of Greek epics is uh, only a way of clearing away the debris so we can find a historical Jesus.
0: Very good. And she asks a follow-up question. Does Dennis believe Jesus was the son of God? No. Nice, straight, and succinct. Okay, here's another one. Gordon Gamsy thank you for the question. Is the event where Jesus calming the sea mimetically inspired by the ball cycle?
1: No, I don't think so. I think the calming of the sea uh, is really quite clearly coming from um, Odysseus's uh, Elis episode where um, Odysseus is unable to calm the sea um, that is caused by his... Uh, um, his associates opening the bag of winds, um, and uh, Jesus's uh, co- associates are unable to calm the sea. They wake Jesus, and Jesus is actually play, uh, playing the role of
0: Aeolus, the god of winds, by calming Eolus.
1: the sea. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Okay, how this is the Q question here from Doug Vincent, my dear friend, Doug Vincent. We're actually working on a uh, show together on something else. Uh, how do you know which parts belong to Q? What clues or markers are used to tease it out of the other text? Um, that's a very
1: good question, and it's extremely complex. I can only tell you what it the is. criteria are. I can't tell you what the... the um, The concrete solutions are the in my view, the most important things to recognize are that the authors of the um, Synoptic Gospels wrote in this sequence, Mark, Matthew, Luke. But we often have content in Matthew that's earlier than Mark. Where did that come from? Especially in doublets—that is, places where Matthew has content that he gets from Mark and it's from somewhere else—why is it that Luke, who probably knows Matthew and and Mark, has content that's earlier than either one of them? Was well, yeah. gotta be coming from somewhere. <clears throat> so the most important criterion that I use is um, reversed priority that is where Matthew has content earlier than Mark or Luke has content earlier than Mark or Matthew. And that has to be demonstrated from the Greek text in a careful way. Now, in my view, there are three criteria that determine whether one reading is earlier than another. And again, this gets deep in the weeds, Doug, and I'm sorry for it, but there's no alternative to it. One is um, is, the, um, is the comparison, is one saying a part of a narrative or does it stand independently? And the growth of the tradition is usually that a saying will produce a narrative as opposed to a narrative being dissected into a single maxim. Or a single statement. So um, when you find something independent in one version and it's absorbed into a narrative in the second one, the second one seems to be um, secondary. Another is um, the, the, the criterion of improvement. If you can compare two sayings and one of them is clearly an improvement on the other, And there are all ways to understanding what improvement would be. But the tradition is not going to make Jesus dumber. It's always going to make him smarter. It's not going to make him less powerful. It's going to make him more powerful. It's not going to create problems. It's going to try to resolve
0: problems. Yeah, It enlarges Jesus.
1: So so sometimes you find in Matthew something that's... um, that Mark has probably tried to improve. Um, And so that would make it earlier. So that would be another one. Another, the final one is uh, uh, atypicalities are more um, uh, primitive than typicalities. That is, we know the writing styles of the various synoptic authors. And we can see what their vocabulary is, what their proclivities are grammatically and so on. And when we find those typicalities, um, we're likely to attribute them to the author, but we may have parallels, and we often do, actually, we've got about 40 of them in the New Testament, where the parallel in an earlier text has atypicalities. Um, they don't represent the uh, impulses of the gospel authors as we have them. So, uh, Doug, I think the value of your question is this. Um, we can't, we shouldn't make judgments about which text is early or over another one because of theology. We have to do it because of philology. We have to get into the Greek, we have to understand what are the um, proclivities of the various authors, we have to, and by the way, Q scholars have done this for a hundred years with great precision, and and we need to give give them credit for it. They made uh, several mistakes early on, and that has made people skeptical of the Q document, but it certainly is possible to reconstruct much of Q. And I think it's the most valuable resource we have to understanding the
0: historical Jesus. Yeah. So, can you guys see why I'm going to utilize so much of Dr. McDonald's materials in my own New Testament commentary this year? Yeah, baby. Okay. Here's another great question. And this is again from our beloved Patty Cake Was Jesus actually resurrected? No. No would you like to elaborate on that or just keep it at no oh <laughs> uh, well, the, the 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 historical the acts. the acts would disagree with that right the description in acts
1: the whole new testament would disagree with it
0: <laughs> yeah you know, oh, no, um, <laughs> if,
1: if christ is not risen our faith is in vain that's what paul said that's
0: that's paul yeah 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 so
1: um the, the, but patty i don't want to be um, uh, Cavalier with you, because your question is um, meaningful and it's important, and it's a one that lots of viewers are going to share. Um, it's I think we need to understand and take very seriously what we know about science and about death and about uh, and then about social groups and uh, mythologies. It's a lot more hopeful to say that Jesus, as the hero of these communities, was risen from the dead because it offers promise of eternal life. And this is one way that the church has tried to make bank on uh, its parishioners by saying that we can offer eternal life. (coughs) I think the issue is not eternal life. It ought to be hope. And I think resurrection is one way of talking about hope. And of course, living in an environmental crisis, as we all do, we all need hope. So I'm not trying to minimize the hopefulness of early Christians as they understood it is embodied in the resurrection. But um, if we take science seriously, and I think we absolutely must, that's why I'm a humanist. And I consider myself a scientist of sorts. Um, I just don't see that there's any, any way we can... Um, rescue um, uh, a a Jesus who was raised. And actually, I think it was uh, a lamentable theological development, but understandable.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a great response, a good response. Um, How is it possible? Here we go. Here is another real good. David McKay, thank you for your question, my friend. How is it possible that Matthew have content earlier than Mark if it is generally accepted that Mark appears at least a decade prior to Matthew or Luke, does that mean that Mark was modified?
1: Uh, David, it doesn't mean that Mark was modified, but it's a great question. The reason that um, Matthew has content earlier than Mark is he knows the Q document. And we see this especially in, some. again, this is very scientific, but uh, the doublets, Where Matthew has content one kind, it comes from Mark, and it's always um, more developed than Mark, it's secondary. And then he has another version of it somewhere else, and it's more primitive. So it's not that you have multiple versions of Mark, it's rather you have Mark in another document that has content that's more primitive and probably that Mark knew.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I don't know if this is a question, but it's a good comment by my dear friend Tim Rathbone, whom I have had on my show. Uh, according to Joseph Campbell, it's internal, not external. When one views it as an internal resurrection, then it changes.
1: Okay, let me think that through. Just a minute. According sure. to yes. Campbell. By the way, I'm a, I'm a fan of Joseph Campbell with qualifications.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh-oh. Did I lose you? Um, no, you didn't oh. lose me. I'm just trying to think through an answer.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah you look like you froze for a sec. So all
1: right, good. Um the there, Tim, I may ask you to rephrase it. Um, Joseph Campbell, in his understanding of mythology, um is interested in how mythology works with the universal subconscious that is he's a Jungian at heart and so he talks about a hero with a thousand faces so that notions of resurrection appear within Greek religion and um, Indian religion in um, Asian uh, Hindu religion and so on Uh, not because of uh, the, the cultures only, but because of the way that the human is created, that is, that we have this universal subconscious that uh, latches onto mythologies that are meaningful. Um, um, I'm more interested in what folklorists do with mythology, that is, they relate it to um, different societies, that is, different cultures. And so these are called ecotypes or household variations of the, of the of the universals. So I'm less interested in universals than I am in the the um, the, the, the special social functions of these things. So for um, Campbell, if what I have here is internal resurrection, is would be for him a way of talking about hope in the midst of struggle of life and uncertainty. Um, I think it has that function, but I think it also has the function of offering hopes to social groups about the uh, vindication of their sufferings and making sense of, of life. So, Tim, that may not be exactly what you were after, but I'm glad you brought Joseph
0: Campbell into the discussion. Yeah, he's a fun read for me, too, Dennis. I've enjoyed his works immensely. He kind of helped me keep on a spiritual-type path somewhat. Uh, Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Our dear friend Patty Cake has another question. Is reincarnation a possibility, Dennis? Um, I'm really not a metaphysician or a theologian,
1: Patty, so um, uh, I I do think, no, I don't think that reincarnation is a possibility, but I also think that uh, I have a, a very good friend who claims that in his infancy, he was sure that he had a previous existence and I'm not in a position to say that his experience was not valid. And there's a branch of psychology that actually has studied uh, various um, uh, testimonies of people that say that they had experiences of uh, a primer, uh, of, uh, earlier lives. And uh, is this a psychological ruse? Is it? A a pathology? Is it? uh, Does it relate to reality? I doubt it relates to reality, but it is reality for these people. I think the reason for reincarnation, especially if we go back to the Platonic version of reincarnation, is that human beings, all of us, screw up, and we need a second chance. Or third for me. Oh, okay. And sometimes reincarnation um, is not necessary because in the end we get it right and we don't have to take a body any longer and we can be with the stars fixed in the firmament. This is the Platonic version, the the Socratic version anyway. So um, I think reincarnation has to do with a process of trying to make human life better and to give us encouragement to do the right thing so that we can purify our lives in such a way that we finally get it right and we don't have to be reincarnated. Um, For Plato to be reincarnated, if you've been really bad in life, could mean that you've become uh, reincarnated into a donkey or an ant. So uh, you know we don't have to we don't have to worry about that.
0: Good answer. Okay, my dear and lovely friend Geoplanet Jane asks Carrie, "What does our guest think about those who claim to have had near-death out-of-body experiences, seeing God, Jesus, dead relatives, etc., and then being told they needed to return to this realm?"
1: I actually have a friend who is a big believer in uh, near-death experiences. Um, And I I don't know the science of it as well as he does and there is a branch of psychology that studies these things. So I would be fatuous uh, and arrogant to, to weigh in on that question. But I think that our minds are so complex And they probably have a function after we stop breathing. Um, And I'm not denying that people have those experiences. But I wouldn't be surprised that with resuscitation, um, that people recall things that their minds were doing as a way of coping or finding hope or whatever. Um, So... uh, 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 geoplanet, I want to put it this way, I guess, if I can, as candidly as I can. I think it's a diversion to think about an afterlife. Okay. Whether it's reincarnation, whether it's resurrection, whether near-death experience helps. I think um, religion has tried to, especially the Christian religion, including Mormonism, has tried to make bank on we offer eternal life or we offer uh, the way that I want to be known after I'm dead is in a book called Synopses of Epic Tragedy and the Gospels. That's going to be my immortality. And I think the immortality that we have of raising good children and of protecting the climate and making sure that um, income disparities is uh, is not a plague, is going to be a better um, resurrection uh, and a, a better legacy. Now, that sounds too romantic, perhaps. And I'm not a scientist, so I think, Planet, um your question's a good one. It's not one I uh, am going to be very concerned about. I'm going to be concerned about um, making sure that my, uh, my children and grandchildren th- thrive.
0: Yeah, I, I have come to, in my own kind of thinking, Dennis, I've kind of come to uh, where I've said, you know, and I don't mean this with any disrespect whatsoever to anybody else's belief either, but uh, heaven can wait. I'm not here right now. Uh, um, this is where my focus. I have to eat here. I have to breathe this air here. I I get to interact with people here. And so... And, and when I'm asked, because Mormons do the same thing, Dennis, they really push the the thinking, oh, well, what about, aren't you afraid you're not going to gain your celestial glory? Yes, you know? Aren't right. you afraid you're not going to be with your families forever? There's always that fear factor and all. And And I've come to the point where I say, you know, I deal with my daily problems here as best I can. And yeah, I don't always solve everything, but when I get to there, if there is a there, then I'll deal with the problems there. And I've actually been asked, I've been asked, uh, well, what are you going to tell Jesus when, when he, he, uh, he, he talks to you and all that. And I, and, and he tells you that you were wrong. And I say, well, Then I'll correct it there and then. (laughs) In the meantime, I'll do the best I can now. And I really don't mean that facetiously either. It's just this is where we are, and we need to deal with our home here. Uh, T.O., Travis, T.M. Overly, and I actually did talk about that in the uh, Cosmic Covenant of the Book of Enoch through Margaret Barker and Father Robert Murray. And we're going to continue that discussion too. So thank you Jane for that wonderful question. Uh, yeah, yeah, there we go. And Jane just now posted, she said, I agree with Dennis. That's why my focus is now working to stop and reverse. Global oh, Jane, bless you. There you go. There you, you just go. made a new friend, Jane. Way to go girl. Yeah, baby, you rock. So there we have it. And, uh, so any other questions, you guys? Uh, we we have another six hours, so start asking. Oh, no. <laughs> Golden Thrasher, good. To, oh, yeah, everybody hit the like button if you would be so kind. That would be nice. Thank you. That helps the demographics. I'm not trying to be vain. or I'm small meat and potatoes, you know, but it, it's a lot of fun. I, I am so blessed because I get to associate with such great people in my chat and on the telephone and through my emails and through videos like this and all. and I'm getting to meet so many doggone cool people. It's a, it's a good life. Um, you know, you, you be friends to have friends. You do good to uh, share good and all that jazz. So it's a lot of fun. All right. Oh, here we go. David McKay, thank you for another question. Do you hold to the idea of Christ as an ultimate archetype, as Jordan Peterson subscribes to? That's interesting. Um, No,
1: I don't. Um, the, The first issue is, as soon as you talk about Christ, you're talking about a mythological overlay of Jesus. And I don't believe in any ultimates at all. I think I really don't, I don't think um, the human life is so uh, dependent on our sociology, uh, our gender, our religious orientation, our political orientation, that any talk of archetypes or normativity for me is scary. And um, so I no, I wouldn't talk about uh, any archetypes. What I would say that the Christ symbol became an archetype for people who are identified with certain kinds of Christ- Christianity. If you see this, you can see this clearly in um, Orthodox art. You go into a Byzantine okay. church and yeah. you see that Christ is the Christus Victor, yeah, um, and the or, that, Ponto you
0: know, or you know,
1: that's, that's right. It, and you have it then also in uh, people talking about the Cosmic Christ, yeah, um, in modern theology. I just think that that is so far removed from the sociology of life that I'd rather talk about how the Jesus image became archetypal for concrete of societies and how they filled that archetype with ethical meaning. So yeah. um
0: yeah. Interesting. Um I have a question for you, Dennis. Which which uh gospels did which one of the gospels did you enjoy the most finding so many wonderful parallels out of the Greek epic literatures which is your favorite gospel or is that even a legit question
1: Uh, those are two different questions one is which one did I have the most fun with
0: yeah yeah which
1: one is the the next one is which one do I have uh, the most uh, attachment to I suppose the the most fun one has got to be the gospel of Mark yeah, uh, you have the I knew these, that one go, was coming. going all, all over the place. It's it's yeah. uses of the Q document. The author is so creative and uh, yeah. adventuresome,
0: but I think you've um, done more work on Mark than any of the others, too. So,
1: well, Let's maybe see. so. Um, I actually, oh, I please. think I published more on Luke than uh, in Luke Acts.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, see, like I said, I confessed, I don't have all of your books, and I've only got the Luke and Virgil one, which was fantastic.
1: But there's also um, Luke and the Politics of Homeric Imitation and so on. And the reason for that is that I think um, Luke is um, the most mature and learned of the Gospel authors and is interested in helping the emerging uh, Christian community Identify itself inside of the Roman Empire, not as a a a, um, a threat and not as a competitor, but as a culmination of some of the Augustinian, uh, uh, sorry, the Augustan age uh, values of bringing peace. For example, his interest in bringing Jews and Gentiles together is really magnificent. Yeah. His understanding of the kingdom of God as a continuing um, uh, 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 presence, along with the Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, his ability to sift through um, early, earlier gospels and to select things that contribute to his understanding of Jesus and Paul, for example, as um, is really uh, Jewish philosophers who make sense in the Greco Roman world. So I would compare um, what Luke has done with what uh, Josephus had done and what uh, other uh, Greek intellectuals did. So I think um, it was most fun to play with Mark. It was most um, um, impressive to play with
0: Luke X. Have you heard? Uh- another quick follow-up. Have you heard the uh, theory that Luke is actually Plutarch? No, I haven't. You haven't? I'll send you the link to the study that I've got. Uh, it is actually quite astonishing, at least from a, a non-scholar, but an intellectual, as you so kindly called me, and I'll I'll take the label without question, because I love to study. I, I consider myself a serious student, but uh, yeah, yeah, Luke Luke could so have all. Uh, and I think that's a fascinating maybe. <laughs> so you know, um, it looks like oh, here's another one from our beloved Patty Cake. Thank you for the questions. Keep them coming, you guys. Do you believe in synchronicity, Dennis? Um, Carrie, do you know what she means by synchronicity? Yeah, what do you mean by synchronicity, Patty Cake? If you would mind. And Geoplanet Jane, while she's recorrecting, uh, uh, says she's my official stylist, too. She kept encouraging me to get a haircut so that I looked better on camera. It didn't help, but thank you anyway, Jane.
1: Well, I think what the synchronicity may mean from Patty Cake, and I'll let her uh, clarify if this isn't right, right, is whether there are, in the history of religion, uh, synchronic developments so that you don't have to have a generic relationship. I'm sorry, a genetic relationship of ideas, but that ideas can um, emerge synchronically. Um, one could make an art, let's see, unrelated events. Um, sure. Yeah, but of course, the the crafting of such meaning, Patty cake, is going to be um, a subjective. It's going to be people who see events and they put them together-
0: To have meaning.
1: And to have meaning. That happens in life all the time, doesn't it? I have friends who say that they had um, it, it, an experience um, um, one day in they were reminded of their father and their father died that same day. Yeah. So, you know, what does that mean? Or right. that you you so I do believe that now of course I don't know that there is such a thing as synchronicity. I do know that people put meaning together because they see events that may be unrelated but they are meaningful to the way they re- relate them yeah
0: yeah, interesting. Any other questions, you guys? we're We're approaching an hour 45 minutes. We probably ought to we're pretty much uh, having my uh, run of the time, but uh, what a great audience. Thank you tonight for your your questions, you guys. I really appreciate. It. I know this was a a Thursday night live. Uh oh hey, David McKay has an interesting question for you, Dennis. Are you active in any particular church denomination? No. No, you don't go to no. church either? No. It's all good. Every day in life is church if you look at it in a certain way, David. <laughs> so but, but in a good way. In a good way. Don't boy, don't yeah, don't go sit in pews every day and yeah. So let me, oh. let me tell you
1: why that's the
0: case. Okay, yeah, please do. I don't don't want to be
1: in a church um, and be exposed to things that make me cynical. And um, I don't want to be there as a critic. But that doesn't mean that churches can't, in fact, embrace the kinds of things we've been talking about, David. And um, I can... uh, and there are certain religious experiences that I have in my neighborhood. Let's say where I think people are getting it right, and they're um, they're pushing in, in the right direction. But I become so cynical about the way uh, pastors um, and and the the um, lectionary um, use the Bible that I'd rather not be. Um, so cynical and upset about it.
0: And that's kind of sad, Dennis, because I am in the same cotton picking boat and it shouldn't be that way, but it is. So we've got to deal with it. Um, how can we contact Dr. McDonald? Um, uh, well, I, I forgot to describe your webpage and all that. I apologize. Yeah, you can do the webpage. That's one way. Um, and, um, google him
1: yeah google me and i'll i'll get back to you
0: yeah google dr mcdonald that that would be uh um and and david is very appreciative thank you david uh thank you i admire your perspectives i'll have to look more into your work which is very very i i promise uh you Will enjoy doing so. Tim Rathbone is asking for your URL. You don't know that right off the bat, do you? Um,
1: uh, the URL would be um, what? What my, my email address?
0: No, your don't you have a website or something? A blog? Oh or? yes, uh, the
1: website is this. Um, one word. Dennis R. MacDonald,
0: M-A-C, dot O-R-G. Hold on, I'm creating a banner. Dennis R. Tell me if I got this right, uh, Dennis. Dennis R. MacDonald, dot dot O-R-G.
1: Oh, yes, that's it. There you have it. Okay, that's how there, there
0: are links um, to
1: various videos and the books and so on.
0: Yeah, you also have a uh, an academia.edu page, don't you? I do, but I don't use it much. Yeah. Oh, don't you? Okay, well, you'd be better off contacting him here on that uh, scrolling uh, site there. Um, okay, let's see. <laughs> do you do you want to say this? Which city do you live in? Claremont, California. My Claremont. Family. There you go. Where does he eat regularly? Oh, she's look where do you eat regularly, Dennis?
1: At home and in my retirement community. Thank you.
0: There you go. There you go. I do too, because my wife is such a great cook, so Yes, uh, let's see. (laughs) No, I'm not going to give his home address, RFM, smart Alec. Let's see. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I wanted to put up uh, Heidi Christensen expresses her appreciation. Thank you, Heidi. I appreciate you being in the audience. You're always a good member in the chat in the audience, and I love you, girl. I appreciate this so much. Thank you. And Patty Cake has expressed her thanks. This has been so valuable. Thank you both so much. It has been our pleasure, and we will be doing this several more times this year in the up-and-coming years. Oh, hey, Dennis, do you mind? Um, Dennis is uh, just getting ready to go... Uh, meet with Derek Lambert of MythVision, my dear friend and brother in arms in the video podcasting world. Thank you, Derek Lambert of MythVision. Big shout out because he's the one who put me in touch with Dr. McDonald. And we've all become good friends. But Dennis and Dr. McDonald are putting together a college course Uh uh, and I, would, would you like to explain what you're doing, Dennis? I, I think this is important. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about it. Well, you...
1: I'm, I'm going to have to stop to get some dinner at, at some point uh, soon, Terry, but, Carrie, but I'll be glad to tell you what it is. Um, we're going to have uh, 24 relatively short um, YouTube videos that are in a, or videos of some kind, podcasts, that are going to be uh, in a class. And the class is going to be entitled Reading the Gospels with One Eye on Greek Poetry. And most of it is going to be reading from the synopses. Mm -hmm. But then after we read the synopses, uh, including the Greek parallels, um, Derek and I will have a discussion, but there also will be uh, study questions. And um, so I'm hoping that this can be used in religious communities or in discussion groups, book groups, so that you can compare these two stories and then make your own judgments. So, for example, in the one we just talked about, um, here are the things to ponder. This is part of the class. Mm mm-hmm. Why does the Mark and evangelist send the risen Jesus to Galilee and thus deprive the disciples of an appearance? That is, that Jesus, uh, the young man in the tomb, Mm -hmm. um, tells the women to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. They'll see him, but they don't say anything. They didn't. So they they never see him. Um, Was Mark's portrayal of the three women positive or negative? Is he blaming the women for not telling the disciples to go to Galilee, or uh, is he sympathetic to them, Um, and so on. But there are going to be study questions uh, or topics of discussion, and then we're going to have um, discussions online, apparently in the course. That's how I think it's going to work. So um, we're going to, so it's going to have 24 sessions. The first one's going to be a general introduction and the uh, final one will be a conclusion with what this means and where we go from here. But the ones um, from two to 23 are going to be um, um, readings from the synopses, very similar to what you and I did, Kerry. Nice. Um,
0: All right. Good. Uh, And and Jane, I will let you know when those courses become available. Uh, I know Dr. McDonald has to run. One last question for you, my dear friend, is by my other very dear friend, Paul Osborne, whom has taught me so much about the book of Abraham and Joseph Smith papyri. Do you like McDonald's French fries, Dennis?
1: (laughs) Paul, I don't think I've had McDonald's french fries in 15 years. I don't know how to respond. I can though say this, one time I was done with a lecture. Uh, No, I was done with a class, last class period. And uh, the students brought me a, uh, a bottle of sesame seeds. And I said, what in the world are these sesame seeds for? And it's, um, the students said, it's uh, in appreciation for your course and it's for your buns. Sesame seed buns. <laughs> 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 uh, so, you know. You gotta do, love, I, it. I to really love, love it. You gotta love it. And by the way, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the letter R stands for Ronald. I'm Dennis
0: Ronald McDonald. It does, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's why I I suppress the the Ronald McDonald part. That's awesome. Oh, how much fun is that? That's funny. Oh, and Trevor Luke is here. I just wanted to let you know Trevor got in here. Thank oh, you. hi, Trevor. Yeah. I know Trevor has uh, told me several times how much he enjoys you, so. Thank you, Trevor, and and you got Paul Osborne to laugh like crazy, <laughs> so that's fun, so anyway, uh, truly, we, we hate to break it off, but we really do have to go, you guys, yes. we love y'all, thank you for showing up, Dennis, again, thank you, and I'm looking forward to having you on my show again and again and again. Oh, it's, it's a, a pleasure. pleasure. And we will just, we will have a ball. You guys can now see why I'm going to utilize his materials on this New Testament stuff. Okay, so. I i have a final word. Yes, sir, you bet.
1: Use your creativity, my friends, to create something beautiful for a world that needs creative solutions. So um, that, that's what the gospel authors are trying to do. And if you want to uh, live their legacy, create something beautiful.
0: Oh, I love that. That is perfect ending. I'm going to call it good right on that. Thank you, Dennis. I love you, man. You're awesome.